The sermon text for this morning is from the book of Micah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, and chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Well, we are at the end of our series. This We've been in a short series in the Minor Prophets. You know, the Minor Prophets, of course, they're not major, they're minor. They're minor because they're smaller in size, not in importance. And we've looked at the first six. We've looked at Hosea and Amos and, and Jonah and Obadiah. Uh, we've looked at... Um, Joel, and we'll be looking at Micah today. We'll do the other six next year. And what we're trying to do is just introduce you to these books that often get passed over in scriptures. And I've just been doing one sermon per uh, per prophet just to open the doors a little bit and say, hey, these are not dangerous books to open. They're good. They're challenging to read, no doubt, but they're really, really good for us. And what we found is that all the prophets have a similar theme. You know, even two to three hundred years before Jesus was born, uh, they were known as the Twelve. The Twelve because they kind of have a united theme to them. In other words, the prophets continue to hold up God as holy, just like we were singing about, uh, but that God is also very, very merciful. 
And so that's what we're going to find in Micah. In fact, Micah is interesting. His name is actually a question, who is like Yahweh? That's what the name Micah means. In, chat, in verse 1, as Kimi read it, the word of the Lord came, that came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So Micah's book is interesting because it begins with a question. He introduces himself, Micah, and it's going to end with a question. That's where we'll end. Who is like the Lord our God? Now Micah is a prophet, and he's sent to, as you can see, Samaria, Samaria and Jerusalem. Let me remind you of a little history. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel. And, and uh, Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom, the two tribes remaining. Remember a few hundred years before, after King Saul, King David, King Solomon, after Solomon died, the kingdom split in two. And so he's a prophet to both, although fundamentally he's speaking to the southern kingdom. And, and the times in which he preached as a prophet were very prosperous times. They were very good times economically. But as we know, most times when economics go up, spirituality and vitality can go down. And that was the case here, as we're going to see. Now, the <clears throat> structure of the book is a little challenging. Sometimes it's hard to read these prophets. And no less than Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this about reading the prophets. He said, they have a queer way of talking, like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, they ramble off from one thing to the next, so you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they're getting at. A theologian of his stature, these books can be challenging to read, but I'd like to try to make it easy for us. Uh, the book of Micah, remember, these are, it's a compilation of all of his preaching and teaching, and so he compiled it around three cycles of preaching. This is very important. Each cycle begins with God summoning the people to hear. So the first, the first cycle or the first oracle would be in chapters 1 and 2. And it begins in verse 2 with, he says, Hear all you peoples. So God is summoning the people to listen to him. And then the second oracle in chapters 3 through 5, he says, Hear you heads of Jacob, or you leaders of Jacob. So he's going to speak to these leaders in chapters 3, 4, and 5. And then in 6 and 7, he says again, hear all you peoples, and that's the last oracle. In other words, God wants to be heard. God wants us to pay attention. He wants us to hear what he has to say. Now, if you were to sit down and read the book this afternoon, which I have been encouraging, it will take you 20 minutes to read. Just 20 minutes and you will be able to hear what God says. Now remember, when these were compiled into the book that they are now, they were passed, they were compiled for our benefit. They want us to hear. We need to be instructed, because they have a message, and the message of the book of Micah is this. It's that God is holy, and he brings judgment upon sin, but God is merciful to the repentant, and he forgives the repentant, and the one who comes in faith. He's going to point out sin in this book. The book kind of alternates. It vacillates. It goes from gloom to glory. It goes from doom to delight. That's what this alternating work of judgment brings. Sin brings judgment, but God's grace brings salvation. It goes back and forth like that. And that's why you kind of have like a seasick feeling when you're reading it, because it goes back and forth. He's going to bring a word of judgment, but then he brings a word of grace. 
So it's a good book to read and to use as a mirror to our own lives. In fact, the prophets are beautiful that way because it shows the consistency of God judging sin, but it shows the unbending faithfulness of God to a people with whom he's made a covenant. So let's look at it just that way. Uh, personally, you know, as a kid, even growing up still now, I hate bad news. And so I always want to get the bad news over. If Carol says, we've got to talk, or there's something we have to talk about, I'm like, just give me the bad news first, and then save the good news after. And that's what these prophets do. They tend to give the bad news first. That's what I want to do. So we'll look at the gloom of God's bringing a judgment, but then we're going to look at the glory of God being merciful to sinners. So look with me back in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Listen to how Micah starts. Hear you peoples, that's the, that's the call to, to pay heed, all of you pay attention, O the earth, O earth, and all that's in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the sins of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. So what you see right in the beginning is Micah is speaking to you that God has come out of his place. He's come out of glory. He's moving in judgment. That God is coming. He's summoning his people. He's filling his courtroom. He is bringing an indictment against people who have sinned against him. He's bringing a charge against them. And you notice the language is significant. In fact, you might recognize it to be the same language as when he came to Sinai to make a covenant with the people of Israel in Exodus. He came out with fire and thunder, rocks split open, the earth melts. But then he was coming to the people to make a covenant with them. Now he's coming to the people in judgment because they've forsaken the covenant he made with them. And by the way, this isn't just against the people of Israel. He's saying, oh earth here, we do well to pay attention to it. In other words, when God, the divine omnipotent creator of all things, including you and me, when, he face, when we face him, when we reject him, there is divine wrath, there is divine judgment. That's what the Bible teaches us. But you know, God just doesn't come and bring an indictment without giving evidence for it. And that's what we find in each one of the oracles. In 1 to 2, 3 to 5, and 6 and 7, you'll see this repeated refrain of the sins of the people. He's reminding them, this is why judgment falls upon you. Now, I'm just going to boil them down into two categories. One is social injustice, and the other is religious corruption. These are fundamentally the two issues that he was going after. Social injustice, for example. That is, you know, taking advantage of, exploiting, or neglecting the needs of the weak and the vulnerable. The people in this group, as you can imagine, are, tend to be women, children, poor, minorities. You know, th those kind of weakened by life, handicapped those outside the circles of influence. And he's saying to them that you have not cared for them. You have been unjust to them. It speaks about in financial terms. In chapter 2, verse 2, we read, they covet fields and seize them, and houses take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. In other words, what they were doing was these, those that had more were leveraging, putting pressure, oppressing uh, the weaker, the more vulnerable, 
the poor by taking their land, by giving them an undervalued amount for their land. Now, God had designed that the land was distributed among all the tribes of Israel so that the land would be equally distributed, that everybody would have a parcel to live on, and they were leveraging and taking them. And he condemns them for that. They're violating the law. You know, it can be somewhat analogous. If you remember back a few years ago, we used to go to War West Virginia all the time. And we used to work in those poor McDowell County in West Virginia. It was a coal mining county. And the coal mining companies oftentimes were very unjust. Uh, they would hire people in. They would house them in their homes that they had and owned and that the coal miner would have to pay rent. They would have to shop at their stores. They owned the store. They could dictate the prices. They went to their schools. The coal mine established the school. Uh, the coal miner, the, the uh, companies built the churches, had the teachers, and it was a system that was just ripe with injustice, not being able to get out of it. That's what he's criticizing here. The injustice that exists in our culture, not just on a financial, but sexual, with women. Women have been exploited for years. This Me Too movement is only giving a contemporary word to a problem that has existed forever. The exploitation of women for sexual purposes by men of power. But it's more than that. It, 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 the types of oppression are quite varied. But you know what it's all fueled by. Look back in 2.2, he says, they covet fields and seize them. It begins with the desires, the idolatries we have. When you put people in power and they have unchecked desires, they can tend to leverage them. It can take place in your home. It can be injustice in your home, in the workplace, in the community. And the problem is that the leaders were not there to help. You'll notice in chapter 3 when you read, he says this, Hear this, you leaders of the house of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that's straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. In other words, Micah is not just criticizing the culture, but he's criticizing the leadership. Because the leadership isn't stepping in to protect the innocent. And it, they're not stepping in to fight injustice. But not just social injustice, he also criticizes the people for the religious corruption. These were a people who were duplicitous in their faith. You know, they, they, they performed the external marks of religion, but they didn't love God. They used God and religion to advance their own ends. Uh, they were calloused to the word of God. Listen to what he says in chapter 2. He says this, and you can, you can hear the sarcasm dripping. He says, If a man should go about and utter lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. In other words, they wanted their ears tickled. Now, they weren't looking to hear a preacher speak about wine and strong drink. I think he's referring to, they wanted preachers to tell them about how fruitful the lands would be, and how good life would be for them. They wanted what we have now as prosperity preachers. They want to have their best life now. They want to line up behind preachers that will tell them what they want to hear. Avoid talk about God's holiness. Avoid talk about the judgment of God. You know, that's as crazy as you only picking a doctor based upon him always wanting to tell you good news. It, it, it's that lunacy. Lunacy. But not just that, it, the preachers like to do it. Because now he has a criticism for the preachers. He says, hear this, you priests who teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money, and yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? 
no disaster shall come to us. So you see a people that were quite religious, but quite far from God. So he brings condemnation both on social injustice and the religious corruption. And for this, here's what God says. I will judge you. As creator of the universe, as the sustainer of your life, I will bring judgment on you. And he says it in no uncertain terms. He says, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place of planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones into the valley. In other words, I'm going to flatten your city. Now listen, this is a major indictment here. Because God is going to use the Assyrian nation, the powerful pagan nation to the east, he's going to use a pagan nation to punish the people of God. And it did happen. In 722 BC, the nation of Assyria crushed Samaria, hauled their leaders back, removed them from the country. Uh, The ten tribes of northern Israel wiped off the pages of history. God brought judgment. They are no more. Completely wiped out. Not only that, but then in in about 150, and and Micah would have seen that. Micah would have prophesied before it and seen it. And then he also prophesied the destruction of Babylon, or uh, Jerusalem. He says this, he says, Because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And that would happen 150 years, 150 some odd years later. What do we see in all this? This is heavy, heavy stuff. I I get it. Um, I want you to see that the scriptures teach that God does judge. He does judge sin. Now, I think most of us here, you've lived long enough to know that there is a a certain degree of bad fruit over our sin. We know that sin has consequences, right? I I, I mean, if you're old enough to have had an explosion with a friend, you know it can deteriorate a relationship. That if I pursue lust with unbridled desire and I bring in relationships that are sexual outside of my marriage, you know it's going to bring havoc to my marriage. You know that if I lie or if I cheat or if I steal in the office, it's going to ruin relationships. You know that if I maintain bitterness towards another person, ultimately it's going to erode my own soul and my relationship with them. So I think we all know that our sins have negative consequences to our lives. I think we know that. But what I think we forget within the church is that it is offensive to God. In other words, I think that we often want to convince ourselves that our sin has just this horizontal impact. And that there are consequences, but that's all there is. God's not really kind of involved. A liberal theologian by the name of Dodd who says, sin is kind of more of the cause-effect of a moral universe. God's not directly involved. It's kind of you get what you give kind of thing. But I want you to see from the prophets, they're saying, no, God does get involved, actually. God does look at the way you live. God does look at your spirituality. God does look at how you do business. God does look at how you conduct your sexuality. God does know what you say. God does watch how you maintain your relationships. He knows these things. He's intimately acquainted with these things. You know, and he brings judgment. You see it in Genesis chapter 3. The couple with God sins against him. Judgment fell. They were removed from the garden. You see it in Genesis 6. People rebelled against God. He brought a flood. You see it in Genesis 11. They built the tower to reach God. No, he confused their languages. You see it in the exile of Israel to Egypt, to Babylon. You even see it in the cross of Jesus Christ. You see the judge. You see what God thinks of sin. You see that God brings judgment to sin. 
If you really think God plays fast and loose and casual and let bygones be bygones, then what is he doing at Calvary? He's raining down wrath upon a son who's bearing our sins that we might be saved through faith in Christ. God does judge sin. Now, if you're here and this is a struggle for you, this is a hardship, it's like, that's too severe. I don't like this picture of God. I, I, don't, I don't know that I would want to worship a God of such judgment. Well, let me tell you the alternative. You know, Miroslav Volf, I didn't just speak in tongues, Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian, Protestant theologian in Croatia, and he's written, you know, he went through much of the bloodshed that that country saw. He lived right through it. And here's what he wrote about judgment and God. And I want to explain it to you because it can be a little confusing. He says this, he says, If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. He says, the only way of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves, in other words, the only way to stop from returning evil for evil, the only way to do that is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. He says, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence, in other words, are not returning evil for evil, that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance, but this will be unpopular in the West. It takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence only comes from a God who doesn't judge. He's criticizing the West because we want to postulate a God who is nonviolent, who will not judge. And because of that, we say, we shouldn't bring judgment. So he says, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land, and he's speaking now of his own country, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with all the pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. He is arguing that a lack of belief in a God of judgment will result in greater violence. The only way that we can suffer is to know that God will right the wrongs that have been done. That's what gives us the freedom to rest in God. So when you see this God of judgment, try not to shy back. We need a God who will judge the injustices of this world. We need that. But for the church, we start with ourselves. When you look at your business relationships, is there injustice or corruption in your own lives? Do you deal with your employees with equity? Is it fairness in wages? Do you work with integrity? Do you speak in a way that is truthful and helpful? Have you ever thought of asking your employees or coworkers? Are you dealing with them with justice and equity? I ask the staff, I say, have I, have I treated you poorly? Are there ways that I am unhelpful to you? I want to open myself up, myself up to criticism from that. Look at your relationships. If you're in 
a position of employment, perhaps you can even ask them. Do they know that you're a Christian? Do they, you walk with integrity? This is how we walk out these verses. Or not just in business, but in your relationships. Do you only hang around a certain group of people? Do you speak unjustly about others? Do you speak in a way without knowing all the information? Do you share things about others that shouldn't be shared? Do you treat your relationships with justice? Or in the home, even. In the home, I would start with you men. Do you treat your wives with justice? You know, from this pulpit, you hear a position of complementarianism. That means that we feel that men and women are equal in dignity and value before God. There are differences in roles that we may walk out, and those may vary depending upon the couple. But men, do you, do you engage your wife as a co-heir of grace? A lot of times, complementarianism has moved to patriarchalism. I wouldn't espouse that. Uh, patriarchalism would be that, that male rule, per se, uh, where there is this implicit hierarchy between the man and the wife in terms of value and dignity, where a woman is, is not allowed to challenge a decision or to, or to bring her own position uh, to an issue in the home. That would not be a co biblical complementarianism. They're equal value, equal dignity, co-heirs of grace, together becoming one flesh before God. Again, with perhaps differences in roles, but equal, in is there injustice in your home? Men, I would encourage you to ask your wives, do you feel that you are an equal partner in all ways in this marriage, do you feel that you receive the dignity that you deserve bearing God's image? Do you feel that way? I would encourage you to ask them. And, and to give them the freedom to answer in a way that you won't punish them if they give you an answer that you might not like. But, but this injustice is across the board. Is it taking place within the church? Religious corruption. If you're a Christian... Can you seek with me the help of God that we would see sin as he does? That we would want to root it out of our lives? That we would ask, like in Psalm 139, to search me and try me, see if there is any wicked way in me? And that you would lead me, God, to everlasting life? And if you're not a Christian here, what hope do you have standing before this God apart from one who has come to die for your sins? Do you think... And are you convinced that God will give you a pass? I was thinking about this and how often I can justify, deny, and excuse myself. And I remembered in Matthew 12, 36, Jesus warns that every word that I speak will be raised before God. It's a lot of words I've spoken. A lot of words that I wish I hadn't spoken. Every word. This is a God we want to deal with. We want to deal with in this life right now. And I would encourage you to do that. Christian or not Christian here, we want to recognize that God does, does judge sin, but it's not all doom and gloom, and I'm thankful for that. Here's the great thing about the book of Micah. In each oracle, after the doom comes, comes the delight. After the gloom comes, the glory. In every one. Uh, let me give you a few examples. It's like the light 
of the dawn breaking in, right? In chapter 2, after he castigates the people for their religious corruption and their, and their social injustice, he says this, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I'll gather the remnant of Israel. I'll set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture. He who opens the breach goes before them. They break through and pass the gate going out of it. The king passes on before them. The Lord is at their head. What's he promising here? He's promising that Yahweh will come and be a shepherd, and he will lead the people out through the gate. He will assemble them in the sheepfold. He will draw them from exile. It's a promise that he would bring the people back, but more than that. Remember, the idea of exile is a theological idea. You see the first exile when Adam and Eve sinned against God. We were built to be with God. We were built to have fellowship with God. They sinned against God. They were exiled. They were removed from the garden. You see the same thing when God calls them to the promised land. He says this is the land that God will reign over. He puts his temple there. The presence of God is there. When they sin against him, they get exiled again. They're out of the land. We don't want to be in exile. The Christian now should feel the pain of exile because we're not in the land with God. We're not with God. And so he's promising to draw us back to God. But, but there's more than that. After the second oracle, listen to this promise. He says in chapter 4, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. They shall flow to it. And many nations will come and say, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths, that they will beat their swords into plowshares, their spurs into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up nation, sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. He almost takes us off the page of Isaiah 2. He's saying that this king will lead a people, will gather a people out of exile, save them, and bring them into this messianic kingdom. Uh, all the nations will come. There will be, there will be no proliferation of gods anymore. There'll be one God. He'll teach us his ways, and we'll all be with God forever. But he gives us more. He describes this king to us in the very next chapter. He says in chapter 5, he says, But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphratha, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come from me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. He shall give them up until the time she is in labor, has given birth. The rest of the brothers shall return to the people of Israel. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty and the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Micah is saying this. You will be hauled off into exile, but there will come a shepherd who will gather the people together who will be their peace and lead them. Lead them back to be with God. That's what he promises. Now listen, as you trace out the prophets, so Micah probably was between 750 and 700 B.C., there's a growing clarity about this coming Messiah to save. Through the prophets, they're longing for it. They're looking for it. They're looking for a deliverer. Now, now this is why when you get to the New Testament... It shouldn't surprise you to find Simeon and Anna in Luke chapter 2. They're looking for the consolation of Israel. When John the Baptist began preaching, what happens? It says all of Jerusalem came out to hear him. Why? Because they were looking. They had read this prophecy. They had read these prophecies, and they're waiting for a Messiah to come. Well, not just that, but how about Herod? 
When Herod the Great, that doesn't define his character, Herod the Great was told by the wise men who came from the east looking for this king who was to be born in Israel. What did Herod do? Got very nervous. He intended to kill him. He calls the spiritual advisors and says, where is he going to be born? Where do those spiritual advisors go? Right to Micah 5 too. He'll be born in Bethlehem, Epaphrathah. Even his enemies knew that a king was going to become and born. Christ has come as this shepherd to gather his people. As a shepherd gathers people to lead them to God. So Micah is being fulfilled in Christ. But I want you to know, even Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He says, and I lay down my life. This is the remarkable thing about the prophecy is that Christ hasn't just come to lead us, he's come to die for us. He's come to sacrifice himself, as we just sang about, that our sins may be forgiven so that we can be led into this kingdom for which he has made. So if you are overwhelmed by the despair of the gloom in these passages, and you hear about the nature of sin, and you're like, oh, that's such a heavy message, this is why we rejoice in the prophets. Because with the awareness of our sin, we find the awareness of God's grace. God's grace in that he sent one for us. For for those of you here, being a Christian is not simply agreeing to a formal creed. Being a Christian is one who has confessed their sin, has trusted in this Messiah who was promised, and who will come again. And, and whose life is marked by a growing distaste for sin. For the Christian who says, well, I can just live any way I want, you don't understand what he's done for you. Church, this is a word for us too, because we now carry on the same message that's to be given to the world. And Jesus, and we're going to look at a six-week sermon on how to be a witness. Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses. This is what we're witnessing to. We're witnessing to Christ coming as king. But notice how the whole, so that's, That's the gloom, you'll see, and the glory of this promised Messiah. But look at chapter 7 with me, because he ends with a question. Go to 7.18, if you would. In 7.18, he says, who is like the Lord our God? Jonah left us with a question that was unanswered. Micah leaves us with a question, but he answers it for us. He says this, he says, who is like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. What Mike is saying here is this. Listen, at the end of this book of gloom and glory, you have a question to ask yourself. Who is like the Lord your God? Quick answer, no one. And no one is like him because of two things in this passage. He is forgiven. He forgives. Listen, the greatest problem that we have in this world is our sin. Human rebellion against God. I mean, you know that. You all have lived long enough. You see the sin, the struggle, and the suffering. You see the death that fills our lives. This is the dilemma that faces men and women. And yet he is one who forgives. You know, when a person says to you, you know, I, I, I can't believe in God because, you know, nobody has answered for me, why does God allow evil? That seems to be the big question that everybody struggles with. Well, forget that question. Let's ask this question. Why does God forgive? Why should he forgive? 
Why, do, why don't we get what we deserve? Why, that, that is the greater theological problem for me, is why would God choose to forgive? And I would say to you this, he chooses to forgive us. In the face of human rebellion, he comes with mercy so that we would say, who is like the Lord our God? He's inscrutable. He's incomparable. Who would do this? We wouldn't, but he did. But not just is he forgiving, he's faithful. Notice how he references Abraham and Jacob. He's saying, I will be faithful to you even when you're not faithful to me. I made a covenant with Abraham and all his children. And the children of Abraham are not ethnic Israel. The children of Abraham are those who believe in the same promise that Abraham believed in, that God would send a, little, a deliverer. And when you believe in Christ as this disciple, and that's why Matthew, by the way, says he's the son of Abraham. When you believe in Jesus as the Messiah, son of Abraham, you are a son of Abraham, and you're guaranteed. So it, when you come to salvation, and then you begin to think, how am I going to end up being saved? So many of us worry about, will we be saved in the end? God gives an oath that he will save you. God's character is resting on his being faithful to those with whom he's made a covenant. And he's made a covenant with us in the very blood of his own son. So who is like the Lord our God? No one is. There is no God that can compare. The gods we chase after, they will never satisfy you like this God. So when you look at the book of Micah today, there are these, there's the theories of, you know, there's the, the teachings of the judgment of God upon sin, but the grace of God in this Messiah. And notice how it ends. Who is like the Lord your God? God is giving us the book of Micah so that we would be led to deeper worship. We would boast only in the Lord. We'd never boast in ourselves. We'd only boast in him. So let's take a minute and just perhaps confess to God the sins that we have walked in that do deserve judgment that Christ has borne for us. Or perhaps if you're, you're here and you've been comforted, think through that he says your sins will be cast into the depths of the sea. Have you cast those sins to the depths of the sea in your mind or are you hanging on to things that he has already forgiven? Have you denied yourself the very grace and pleasure that God has intended for you? And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.